with the Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And with that, our housekeeping is wrapped up, and I want to introduce our guest today. Uh, today on the Survival Podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing John McCann, owner of Survival Resources and the author of Build the Perfect Survival Kit. John's appeared on the Martha Stewart Show. He's been published in the New York Times. When you talk to John and read his work, you quickly realize he really loves what he does for a living. He spent years in the bush out of pure passion for the outdoors, and over those years he's experimented with various components, configurations, and construction techniques for making survival kits. He continues to this day to refine the process and personally train students. And, John, thank you for joining me today. Well, Jack, I thank you for having me on the Survival Podcast. It's certainly uh, an honor to be here. Well, thank you for that. Hey, John, um, kind of the first question, good softball one for you. Um, I really enjoyed your book, Build the Survi- Perfect Survival Kit. And, folks, you guys have to check this out. It's in my book list on, 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 the, on the site, so you guys can find it really easily there. But in that book, you know, you put a lot of emphasis on, on compact and micro kits. And, you know, can you talk about that a little bit and, and how that kind of led you into survival as a profession? Well, I've always tried to be prepared for any eventuality myself. Uh, some some folks think I overdo it a little, but they're the same people who come looking for me when a situation occurs. I like redundancy, and I like to make sure I have stuff on me when I need it. Therefore, when I really got into playing with survival kits and designing different things, I wanted to make them as small as possible because the fact remains, if you don't carry it with you, it's not going to be there when you need it. Uh, the chances are the smaller it is, the better chance is that you are indeed going to carry it. I, I've known a lot of people who have some great big survival kits, but they never seem to have them on them when they need them. So that was more or less my my purpose for miniaturizing stuff. Uh, I build things from mini kits right on up to huge kits, uh, but I, I believe it, it's, it's a methodical approach, and what you have to do is have something on you, whether it's what we call EDC, everyday carry, and then you build from there. As long as you always got the mini kit on you, it's gonna it's gonna help you in any type of a survival situation. Of course, you're gonna want to back that up with a, a medium sized kit or a large kit or an evacuation bag or a bug out bag, but it's really what you have on you when the situation occurs that's that's going to be valuable to you. Stuff that's not on you is going to be no use whatsoever. Well, that's great, and that's a big part of what I wanted to have you on to talk about today. Because in the, you know, my audience is big into the preparedness mindset, 
and a lot of them are more along the lines of preparedness mindset day-to-day for their homes, uh, oncoming disasters and things like that, and we're big on bug-out bags. But as we talk about often when we discuss that on the show, a bug-out bag is, is something that's maybe you carry around mostly in a vehicle or keep in your home, and it's designed to get you from point A to point B as safely and as effectively as possible with some level of comfort. But, yeah, you can't walk into your office carrying your bug-out bag. or you, you can't really – a lot of these bug-out bags these guys have maybe weigh 100 pounds. If they take a walk in the woods, they're not bringing it along. And, and you're right. That's the time when something could go wrong. Can you tell us a little bit about the type of skills that you teach, where it's at, how somebody would learn more about it, things like that? Well, our survival school is in Verona, New York. It's up up northern New York, off the New York State Thruway. It's about midway between Utica and Syracuse. It's really in the middle of 200 acres of land, and and Denise, my wife, and I built the school in the middle of a cedar grove up there. We built all the structures and cedar poles and tarps, and we have this large open-air classroom with a 10-foot-high center we got a little camp kitchen, a large uh, keyhole fire pit, and we have one outhouse. Our, our students, when they're there, really don't see anything but the woods for the entire time they're at the camp. Uh, all our courses are really weekend courses. Uh, we've developed that, and from what we've learned, people just can't, in today's world, can't take off a week to go for a course. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of week courses out there, and of course there's people who go to them, but... If you add a day on each end for travel, you're talking sometimes nine, ten days, and a lot of people can't take the vacation, and when they're on vacation, they don't want to take the time from their family for a whole week. Uh, therefore, we started these weekend courses, and you come in at Friday at 4, the course ends Sunday evening around 5 o'clock. Uh, they've been pretty successful. As you mentioned, uh, we were featured in the New York Times. They did a, a two-page article on us in the escape section on a Friday. We're very thankful about that. Uh, some of the courses, our basic course, really covers the basics. I mean, go figure, right? But this course is really about basic skills. If you're lost or, or you have to spend a day or two in the wilderness, these are skills that you really should be proficient with. And we cover knives and tools, fire-making skills, very important, basic map and compass, signaling, water collection and purification, survival shelters, survival fishing, of course, survival kits, basic traps and snares, and then we get a little into wilderness hazards. Our courses normally start with a short lecture in our classroom, but then we quickly move into the field. We like our students out getting hands-on practice of the skills that they're being taught. Uh, the weekend's busy, but it's a lot of fun. Each night we sit around the campfire, discuss survival and today's lessons. Um, Saturday night we provide a free cookout for the students, so all other meals are really the responsibility of the student for the time they're there. We then move into an intermediate course, and this is where, uh, even though the basic course is a prerequisite to the intermediate course, we start getting into a little bit more field craft skills. Uh, we really enjoy this course. Of course, we enjoy them all. But we continue with uh, basic navigation skills and a little more primitive fire-making skills and survival shelters. But then we start moving into skills like cordage making, making pine pitch glue, uh, containers and coal burning, making bowls and spoons out of coals. We get into knots and lashings, and we have projects for them to do. We get into making fishing spears, this type of thing. Um, it's a good time. Very cool. All the students have a ball, and we make it very, uh, I don't want to say a leisure activity, but it's not just a lecture-type thing. It's Mm -hmm. really a hands-on, and uh, 
our students give us a lot of positive feedback, and they say they, they not only learn a lot, but they have a, a positive uh, experience while they're there. Very cool. So it's, it's definitely not, you know, your, your military-type school where you're, you're put out in a situation to starve for a week. Uh, it's really designed to help teach you how to avoid that type of situation in the first place. Exactly. And we've seen a lot of these type of schools. We've heard about people dying in these type of schools. <laughs> our, our, we feel our job is really to teach you basic skills and intermediate skills and then advanced skills, but to do it in a friendly woodsy environment obviously you don't want to do it on blacktop you want to be out in the woods and camp out and really feel the experience but we don't want to just throw you out in the woods and say okay this is how we're going to survive until you gain your skills that's really not something we want you to do uh as they say at a, a good place that i know uh own the skills we're a true oh, yeah. now. own the skills and then once you own the skills then maybe in a more advanced course, maybe we will go out and uh, have you live from the skills you've learned. But you really have to uh, own those skills before you can do that. Very, very cool. Now, John, day-to-day, like just walking around, you've got a hat, a belt, and a key ring, and that keeps you pretty well prepped. I saw that out at the at the Dirt Time event where you spoke. I thought that was cool. Could you tell folks a little bit about what you're carrying between those three items every day? Well, my... What I call my survival hat is uh, a hat that I wear. It has a uh, hat band on it, which is made from uh, about 30 foot of parachute cord. It's a, it's a five uh, plat braid. Um, in the uh, the band that goes around there, on the back side of it, I keep fishing hooks. Inside the uh, hat band, inside the head is a uh, hundred foot of uh, fishing line. Uh, there is a uh, fire starter and striker, magnesium fire starter and striker, which is in a small pouch sewed into the inside of the back of the hat. And uh, let's see, there's a cord lock compass that uh, is used to, to hold it on your head when uh, the wind's blowing. So th- that to begin with, it, it's not a lot there, but it gives me enough to make shelter, gives me a lot enough to start fire, and, and allows me to uh, catch some food. So those are three important things in survival situation. Uh, food being last, of course. The fire and the shelter are the most important. Uh, I carry uh, what I call a survival key ring. It's just something, there's one key ring in my left pocket which carries keys, and there's one in my right pocket which just carries survival stuff. Um, on that, I, I believe in redundancy, and uh, redundancy with fire is one of my big things. So I've got at least two fire starters on there. I have a signal whistle, a small saw. I got an aluminum capsule which keeps uh, cotton balls with petroleum jelly. Uh, between that and the fire starters, I have the tinder, the fire starters. I know no matter where I go, I always have fire. I have uh, a bearing on there made from uh, an antler for using a bow and drill. It's one of the harder pieces to uh, find in or make when you're uh, getting involved with a, a bow and drill or a primitive fire starting unit. Uh, there's a small photon light on there. Uh, covers a lot of the basic groups. The rest of my pockets, the right pocket where that key ring goes, I always have a space pen and a small knife. In the left pocket, I always carry a lighter and a, uh, a flashlight small flashlight, not a, a, mic, a micron, but a triple uh, A is called an arc light. So I always have redundancy. I have lights, fire. Uh, my wallet, of course, uh, 
has band-aids in it, it has a Fresno magnifier, it has a spark light fire starter and tinder. Um, I'm sure there's more stuff in there. I'm just trying to think out loud here. But between the, those devices on me, I, I wear a belt every day, uh, which has a pouch in it like a money belt that uh, Denise sewed up for both of us, and we carry a cable saw in there. Uh, I'm big on tools. Of course, we always have <laughs> two or three knives or more on us, a multi-tool. Very cool. Things like that. It's just I like to be creative. Be prepared or overprepared, but to me, redundancy is very important because you can always lose something. You fall down, uh, a pocket rips off, you lose stuff out of one pocket. You want to make sure that you have stuff on you. This, of course, is before I have my my uh, my mini uh, survival kit on me. You know, and folks, when you hear John talk about all this stuff, you might think like this guy's walking around rattling or something. But the the keyring kit that he talked about, all that equipment on it, it's no bigger than the keyring most people are carrying it around every day with keys on it. Uh, I actually was able to, to meet John and see, see this stuff up close and personal out of dirt time, and it was, uh, it was pretty impressive how much a person can carry around just day-to-day without it's, it. I'm sure at this point in your life, John, it's like you don't even think about it anymore. It's just there. It's just like I pick my wallet up when I leave. You pick your wallet up when you leave. You just have certain preparedness items in it. Exactly. When, it, when I take everything out at night, which... People or his kid not to be next to me in a lightning storm. Uh, it all comes out and it goes on the dresser in the same way. And every morning it goes in the pockets. I don't even think about it. I I wouldn't imagine me being without this stuff. Uh, it's just a everyday carry, and it's not. I see a lot of people who talk about everyday carry, and I I often want to see it so I can you know examine it. And mm-hmm. say, well, I'm not. I don't have it with me today. Within well, it's not really everyday, everyday carry, right? It's something you carry when you go into the woods. Uh, these are things that I carry every day of my life. I didn't mention my right rear pocket, which I showed uh, when you were out there a third time. I, I carry 30 feet of parachute cord and what I call my pocket pallet, a little piece of plastic. That oh, I that's have. right. I remember that. And that lives in that right rear pocket with a, a one bandana and a little bit of... Um, paper to go to the bathroom with. Gotcha. Uh, that lives in the right rear pocket every day. If I'm in a suit and tie, that's in my right rear pocket. Gotcha. So that's pretty much my everyday carry. I'm sure there's other stuff on me. I always got the survival bracelet, which is seven feet of parachute cord, and um, I always have my neck knife. My neck knife is on me every day. The only time it comes off is when I get on a plane, and that has a compass, a fishing kit, a fire starter, and, and a small fixed blade knife, and that's always on me. Yeah. Well, John, a lot of the stuff that you talk about is very oriented toward you know wilderness survival, and that's what your school is. But obviously, you're carrying this stuff with you every day, walking down the street. So, you know, with that in mind, many of my listeners are really focused heavily on the things like, you know, homesteading, self-sufficiency. We do a lot on alternative power, disaster preparations. Uh, but I found, like, a lot of these primitive skills are very useful in urban and suburban disasters because the minute you have the systems of support fail, well, it's not really a modern environment anymore. What do you think about that? And what are some of maybe the skills you think that you might learn in bushcraft, but they would be valuable when, you know, all the power Hours out, transportation's down, what have you. Well, I think most of them would be valuable. I mean, I I believe heavily in the homesteading. You and I have discussed that, our, our yards and property and gardening and self-sufficiency, disaster preparation. 
however, a lot of people don't understand that if you evacuated from your home base, you know, you can either head for designated government center and hopefully they'll take care of your needs. Or, uh, like me, I'm going to head for the woods or the desert or the mountains or whatever the case may be. I mean, disaster preparations should include this as a contingency. You know, people who stock their homes with food and all the things that most of us in this business do also have to have the contingency that someone may come in and say, hey, you're leaving now, and you better be prepared to do that. And not only should you have what we've discussed, the bug-out bag and all this stuff, but you better have the skills to take with you because all this equipment and all this stuff that you have stuffed in bags and packs, like you said, that you can't carry to begin with, you got to carry them with your car or truck, uh, what's really going to come into play is your skills, your ability to go out there and, and start a fire and stay warm or, or build a shelter, whether it be in a wilderness situation or with cardboard boxes. Uh, the, the ability to, to locate and purify water. Uh, these are important skills that you're going you're gonna to need. That navigation, whether it be with, with a compass or a GPS, uh, it, a survival situation is really not the time to start learning or practicing uh, survival skills or primitive skills. These are things that you should be practicing now. I, I hope that answered your question. No, I very much so did, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more, John. I mean, we just did a show this week on on you know making a decision: do I do I bug out or bug in? Do I stay or do I go? And a couple of the situations that I pointed out to folks where you absolutely have to go are one, you know, the mandatory evac thing that, that you, you mentioned. But there's other times when common sense dictates it's time to go. If you're if you're in a coastal area and there's a force four hurricane bearing, bearing down on you, probably a good idea to get out of there. If uh, you know there's a, a credible nuclear terrorist threat in a major city and you live in the downtown area and you don't get out of there, that's kind of foolish, even if you haven't been forced out yet. And when you go, like you say, where are you going to go to? And I, I prefer to never end up um, in a facility or something like that, and, and it's a last-ditch place to end up, and I'd rather be on my own if at all possible. I also think it's important that when you, when you make these plans, you have contingencies about, well, where the heck are you going to go and how the heck are you going to get there? That I, I agree 100% on that. Um, like you said about going to a government center, that's why navigation is so important. To I avoid them. People <laughs> know exactly where it is, and then you should do a reverse azimuth, shoot 180 degrees <laughs> to the rear, and head in that direction. I mean, uh, that's where navigation is real important. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I know just by reading your book and how much you put into like fishing kit, uh, kits and stuff like that, and like any author, you have a little aside here and there to keep it interesting. You're, you, you've probably spent a lot of your life fishing. Like me, you probably enjoy it a lot. What are your thoughts about that? Is like a, you know, fishing is a not even a survival technique, but a, a protein procurement method. And I, I mean, even for the person that has a nice little creek a few miles away in a suburban environment day to day, or out in the wilderness and getting a few brook trout for the uh, well, I think it's an excellent skill to have, whether it be survival or traditional techniques. I mean, you said it. Fish have a lot of protein, and they can be caught rather easily, a lot easier than other animals. Uh, in the Adirondacks, uh, there's very little edible plants up there, and, and hunting is very restricted. Uh, Denise and I have eaten very well on trips up there, just eating fish and anything that we brought with us. Uh, licenses are cheap. It's a lot quieter than shooting in a survival situation. 
Uh, trapping is illegal in most places uh, without a uh, heavily restricted license, and then even then they don't allow you to use snares in New York State. Mm-hmm. And they're so, seasoned, uh, too. Yeah, and it's seasoned. So fishing is something you can do, as you said, as a leisure activity. There's your uh, building your skill base. And then in the survival situation, it gives you the ability to catch food. And food is very important uh, in the long term. I mean, in the uh, short term, as we know, uh, food is, is one of the last priorities. Uh, we're more concerned with uh, hypothermia, shelter, uh, purifying water, for make sure we stay hydrated. So, so food is one of the last techniques, but it is a technique that eventually you're going to need some food. And fishing is an excellent way to get it. It's extremely comforting as well when you're, you know, to have a little bit of food in your belly when you're in a tough situation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it gives you a, a real morale booster like fire. So now here's something I've noticed, and, and I mean, I remember as a kid, I used to travel, and I, I got, we talked before we started the show, I traveled a lot of the same woods that kind of you did, just maybe a little bit south of you throughout Pennsylvania, and the further my travels I would go back in, and you get into the areas with, you know, the, the native brook trout and all, um, I think a lot of people from, you know, that maybe have never spent time out there would think that those fish, since they're wild, they're harder to catch. What I found is the more remote I get, the more dependent those fish are upon eating whatever they can possibly get. There's more, you know, competition out there. Uh, like you said, in, in the, those deep woods, there's not a ton of food out there. And I found that, you know, catching, like, native brookies out in the middle of nowhere is really easy because they'll eat anything. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, These are skills you've learned and other people have to learn uh, in order to be able to catch, catch fish for food, and that's an important thing. You know, you're making me th- you're making me think now, John, about some of the trips I've taken with people and how unconscious some of the things like these skills become. Where I remember taking people, kind of like you know, not formal, but but kind of guided fishing trips, places I'd been a hundred times, especially in the streams in the mountains. And you learn how to read the water, and you tell a guy cast right there on that side of that rock, and he'd throw back in there five times and be sure there's nothing back there. And you'd walk right up behind him to show him you're just not doing it right, toss in, and you pull a fish out on the first cast. And you really can't even explain to him exactly what you did differently. It only comes from repetition, doing it over and over again. You learn to feel, you learn to think, you learn to kind of to read the water, to know how to make the entry with the cast, and all of that stuff. Like you said, you got to own it. And the only way to own it is to do it over and over again, and that means at first failing. Exactly, and. Uh... It's something, it's hard to teach people these skills. Uh, a lot of things we teach in survival, it's, we teach the basics, and, and it's more or less up to you to go out and really get involved with yourself on these skills, to, to practice them and learn them and, and make them your own, your own skills, because you can't teach everything. Uh, a bow, look at bow and drill, I mean, or hand drill, as, as you've seen out dirt time. I mean, it's something that, you know, you can be shown how to do it in five minutes. Mm-hmm. It could take you years to own the skill. And so, be able to do it consistently. Exactly. Uh, I was thinking about that. You, when you and I was talking earlier, you were asking me how uh, I got into the survival profession. And uh, like I said, I guess it's just by accident. Uh, I guess I'm kidding, sort of. But it, it was by accident that I got into this whole thing to begin with. Uh, I was once told by a friend that I should never make an avocation a vocation. Mm. Uh, it never works out. 
And, uh, well, I guess as you and I discussed, I mean, I took a hobby, a part-time activity, and, and it led me into a whole new career. Um, it's interesting how how we both got into this mm-hmm. and how everybody gets into it. Uh, I've always been interested in survival, even as a kid. I was, you know, in Boy Scouts, and my father was a scoutmaster. Uh, he was actually a gold palm eagle scout. And we spent a lot of time learning outdoor skills, but, but a lot of it was because we didn't have any money. Sure. All our vacations, you know, we went camping in the Catskills. We went camping in the Adirondacks. I used to kid people when I uh, went in the Marine Corps uh, about hotels. I, I told, always told them I didn't know there were hotels. I thought when you traveled at night, you just stopped the car and set up the tent. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's how we get out there and learn skills. You know, and I'm pretty convinced, John, the first person ever made one of them soda bottle fishing kits where you wrapped a line around it to cast it, didn't do it for a survival. They did it because they couldn't afford a pole. There you go. I'm pretty convinced of that. On, on, on some of these other things, like fire starting, you put a ton of redundancy in there. Why is that so important? And it doesn't matter if you're in the wilderness or you're stuck in a, in a bad suburban situation where all the systems of support are down. You've got to have fire. Well, in my humble opinion, and it is humble, fire starting is one of the basic, basic skills that you really not only should have but should master. Uh, and I'm not talking just about primitive methods like the hand drill and the bone drill. These are important skills to own, but just being able to both start a fire and sustain a fire is just so important. And people go, well, you know, why? Like you just said, well, mm-hmm. why is that, John? Well, think about everything that fire does for us in any type of emergency situation. It provides warmth. It keeps you warm. It gives you light. It, you can dry yourself. You can dry wet clothes with it. You can signal with fire. You have a signaling method right there. Of course, we know you can purify food with it. I mean, you can purify water with it. You can cook food with it. You can make tools. You can fire harden things. And one of the biggies in my mind is it provides comfort, morale, and companionship. And those last three are important in the survival situation because they help reduce stress. So of all the other skills we have out here, how many of them give back as many things as fire does? I can't think of the one. Yeah. That's why I think fire is so important. It's uh, something, it's a critical skill, and you better, I'm a big believer in have three ways to start a fire on you, and and not a primitive way. Um, Have three ways to start a fire. Very cool. Um, you talk a little bit about when people are going to be traveling, especially like by aircraft, and there are certain things you can't take with you. Kind of what is, you know, you've got your everyday carry. Is there anything additional people to consider? And one of the questions I get is I'm traveling out of state, and I'm going to a state where I can't carry. You know, I don't know if you do. I, I have concealed carry, and I carry every time that it's legally possible. And people say, well, how do I make sure I have a means of defense when I'm, you know, going to a place where they don't honor that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, on the, on the weapon part of it, uh, it's something people really got to study the laws on. Like you, I have a full carry. I'm licensed in about 17 states for full carry. And uh, if, if you're legal to carry there, then carry there. If you're not, of course, I'm not going to advocate mm-hmm. carrying it illegally, uh, especially a, a, a firearm. Uh, of course, it's whether we're talking about firearms or weapons, you can always carry a weapon with you. I know after 911, people said you can't carry anything to defend yourself, and that's when I went from my plastic Mont Blanc back to my metal cross pen, because uh, as we know, uh, uh, a metal pen can be a very uh, good weapon if it's placed in the right place. Sure. But uh, air travel is 
sort of been a pain since 911. It's lightened up a little. But if you're creative, you can still be relatively prepared. You know, I still carry knives. Of course, they have to go under the plane and luggage. Mm -hmm. But people don't keep in mind, if something occurs, if you're alive, there's a good chance the plane's there. And you sure. you'll be able to get under the plane and get it. And people go, well, if you crash and stuff is all over the place and there's nothing but pieces, well, I'm not so sure you're going to be, have the ability to go, <laughs> Yeah, if it's that bad. Build a shelter. So, yeah. you know, you have to think of that. I mean, on a plane, I like to carry, one of the things I always carry is a smoke hood. I carry that in the, on a plane. I always carry it when I'm in a hotel. If a fire, especially on a plane, if a fire occurs, uh, and this occurs often on, on some type of crash landing, um, it's, uh, smoke fills the plane quick. And mm -hmm. the chances of fighting your way through the crowd, and you know the crowd is going to be fighting for the Panicked. Reaction. It'd be nice to be able to just don your smoke hood, sit there, wait a couple minutes, and let this crowd kill each other, and then, you know, walk out. nonchalantly walk off the plane. <laughs> I think you have a better chance of survival. Wow. Uh, same, way, same way in a hotel. But other things you should always carry is how about a flashlight? I sure. carry a, a particulate respirator. Uh, you know, just uh, look at the people um, down in New York City when the, when the uh, New York trade went down. Those people should have some type of face mask with them, and they wouldn't have had that stuff all over their uh, breathing apparatus, such as their nose and mouth, you know. Another thing I always carry is potassium iodide. I mean, uh, I carry one in my wallet. We keep them in the vehicle. We have them in our toiletry kits that we travel by plane. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows that uh, the major maker of that is ISAT. It's used to protect your thyroid gland against radioactive iodine release during any type of a nuclear emergency. You know, and I was just laughing, John. I watched a show the other night called The Day After Disaster, and they were talking about how they would distribute potassium iodine after the nuclear disaster. And one of their ideas was, and this is the government. They're going to mail it to us in the post office. Yeah. And I'm thinking exactly. that's going to great. That's going to really help a lot. Well, people ask me, why, why do you actually carry one in your wallet? And I says, well, when you're riding home from work and you're heading somewhere and it comes over the radio, yeah. uh, there, there's been a, uh, a nuclear emergency, everyone please take your potassium iodide now. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of late time to, <clears throat> excuse me, to say, well, I guess I'd better run home and get this. Because quite frankly, where I live, you know where I live, and I'm within 50 miles of a nuclear reactor. Sure. I'm heading north to the Adirondacks, and I don't want to have to swing by the house to pick up my potassium iodide. Yeah, yeah. So I carry that and uh, carry a bottle of water or a bottle for water. Mm -hmm. You really can't take bottled water on a plane now, but you can take bottles. Sure. And you can certainly fill it when you're on the plane. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to always carry a jacket. Of course, I don't like going anywhere without duct tape. Um Carry matches. You're allowed to carry matches on a plane. People think you can't carry any fire. Mm -hmm. uh, you can carry a small lighter. I carry my uh, my feral cerium, my fire starter rod, with striker on my keychain with the tinder. And pe people have asked me, you know, what is this thing? I tell them what's well, a feral rod. Well, what's that? I said, well, it's a little, it's a little rod thing there. Oh, okay. And, you know, they don't know. <laughs> I carry a whistle. I carry always a flashlight. I've mentioned that. Yeah. Redundancy. I like to have a pad and pen with me. Yeah. And uh, I like to carry a first aid kit. And uh, very important is water purification tablets. Gotcha. If a situation does occur. And if you got some type of little cup or pot, it'd be nice to be able to boil water. But uh, these are things that you can carry all the time on a plane, and they're not going to stop you. It's the liquids they don't like. They don't like sharpie objects, although... Mm -hmm. 
like I've said, a, a cross pen is kind of nice. Sure. Uh, with a well-placed shot. So yeah. These are just my ways of thinking of it. I'm not trying to get around the rules. I'm trying to, to work with them. And I don't advocate getting around the rules. I'm trying to work within the the framework of what we're allowed to carry. Yeah, carry yeah. everything I can to uh, be able to protect myself in, in a situation. Very cool. Uh, just on, we talked about trapping, and it is in a lot of situations pretty illegal. Um, but if we're in a situation where people are trying to feed themselves or starve, you know, then some of those things kind of go out the window. Now I've practiced a lot of these these different, uh, you know, like the peyote deadfalls and figure fours and, and all these things out in the wilderness. But as I've looked around suburbia, I thought, well, if, if things ever really break down around here, there's actually a surprising amount of small game. Do you think that these techniques would be just as effective in somebody's backyard if the game's there as they are out in the middle of the wilderness? Well, they're absolutely just as good in your backyard. Uh, I always kid uh, my students once in a while say, well, you teach us traps and snares, but before you teach us a class, you give us all these legal ramifications and that it's illegal yeah. and don't do this and this, that, and the other thing. And I always kid with them, and I say, exactly, if you're in a survival situation, and you've really been out there long enough to where you have to start trapping and snaring in order to catch food, then maybe you really want to set them up earlier, and that way the park ranger will come along, he'll arrest you to a warm place, give you a warm <laughs> meal, and you just solve the survival situation. But, uh, you know, kidding aside, I mean, I know right in my yard, I mean, Christ, my biggest thing is keeping the damn animals out of my garden. and yep. i got uh, squirrels everywhere, and... Uh, uh, we both have a mutual friend who who teaches uh, using a rat trap. Yep. I mean, I've been yep. doing that for I've been doing that for years. Yep. I mean, to catch small game. Uh, what I warn people about is practicing with these type of skills in your yard. The last thing you want to do is come out in the morning and somebody's cat. That, yeah, the neighbor's cat yeah. on a, you know a spring up snare or something. The neighbors really get upset about. Yeah, it. their cats out there wailing. You want to be careful, but in yeah. a survival situation, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, we're going to eat. I mean, people in cities eat rat all the time. Yeah, uh, I've been I've been catching uh, with uh, with very small deadfalls uh, some cotton rats that have decided to live under my deck, and I think they're there to eat the bird seed that I feed to the birds. And uh, I keep a python, so I've just been feeding them to the snake. But if I had to, I guess I could eat them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, hey, John, if somebody was interested in attending your school, where can they find out more about it? And you know, I guess you really they, talked about what they can expect when they get there. Yeah, if they go to my website, BePreparedToSurvive.com. Uh, there's a whole section on there on courses, and it explains uh, what the courses are, what you have to bring. Uh, it gives a schedule when the classes are. Um, pretty much any information they need is on the website. Our phone number is on every page of the website. We get a lot of people who call and have other questions, and myself or Denise are always more than happy to uh discuss it with them or, or help them out or explain to them what it's going to be like. I know when we uh, did a course last year, uh, we had a woman come up 64 years old out of New York City, never been in the woods in her life. And we really, in, in a nice way, Denise tr- almost tried to talk her out of coming, you know. Yeah. Uh, and she said, no, no, I have, to, I have to know that I could survive a night or a weekend in the woods and came up and had, a, a she said, the greatest time of her life. Awesome. And, uh, so it's it's that type of an atmosphere. We're not there to scare you. We're yep. there really to teach you the basic skills so that you can go out and practice with them. 
You know, I think that it's it's the same thing that I talk about when I talk about homesteading stuff and gardening and putting your hands in the soil. There's certain things that that human beings spent the majority of the time that we've been on Earth doing, and things like hunting, gathering. Uh, basic farming, not these giant agricultural monstrosities, but, you know, everybody lives somewhere, even a hunter-gatherer would stay put for a while and cultivate a few things around them. That was, and, and those things center you back to your authentic nature, and I think that's why folks like you and I are so attracted to it. And I think it's why a lot of people that have never been there, as soon as you expose them to it, it becomes a big part of their lives. Exactly. Uh, it, it makes you feel much more secure in your own abilities. I don't ever like being in the position whereby I'm uh, waiting for someone else to take care of me, and I know that seems to be the American way today, and everything is somebody else's fault, and, you know, the government will, will take care of us. I, I like, I've always been a real independent cuss. Uh, in between our gardening and our uh, dehydrating stuff for the winter, uh, Denise is, having been a uh, home ec instructor in Switzerland, is an excellent cook. Uh, we make all our own bread. Uh, and there's something to be said for that, just yep. knowing that these type of skills, and these are skills, uh, like the survival skills, being able to do this, being able to grow your own food, uh, identify edible plants, uh, these are important things, and, and they're things that can become a part of your life. And with people like you and me, they become part of our life. And it just gives you a real a sense of self-being, that, mm-hmm. hey, I, I, I can really take care of myself if I had to. Uh, as you know, I live out in the country. I mean, I, I rely on me for water, sewer, everything but electric. And being we go sometimes five to ten days without electric, you know, my generator has been set up whereby we can, you know, maintain some semblance of uh, a lifestyle that we enjoy. And at the same time, force ourselves to go out and learn and, and live the hard life a lot of times. Uh, even like at our school, the students say, where, where do you guys stay? That tent over there. Yeah. Um, we're here with you people. I mean, Got you. We don't go, like, stay in a, you know, a hotel or something. Sure. And, and it teaches you. It makes you become comfortable in that environment or the environment of your backyard. So if just kind of wrap it up here, John. If anybody... Uh, has you know friends, family, people they care about that they're trying to share? Because I get this question a ton from the audience. I'm trying to get people more interested in actually taking care of themselves, doing all the things you just talked about. Do you have any final thoughts on maybe a question a person could ask that kind of provokes a thought response or, or anything like that to help people kind of spread the preparedness message? Well, I think an important thing is for people to continue to learn and explain to other people uh, as we just have, I mean, why this is so important. Uh, if people ask me, uh, where do I find out information? I mean, the world is full of information. We got websites, we have books. Uh, obviously, I always tell them, make sure you buy my books. Of course. Survival kit. Um, what people really have to understand is is that everybody can do this. Everybody can learn this. Uh, people are always talking about these experts. Experts go to the expert. Uh, I'm very big on telling my students and anyone who calls us on our products that, you know, I, I haven't, don't, and never will consider myself an expert in any of this stuff. Survival uh, among all of it. Uh, what I really consider myself is a student of this. Uh, if you become a student, 
uh, you're going to stay a student, and that's what I want to be. I want to be a student until I, until I die, because a student is continually learning, uh, grasping for information. Uh, I'm always afraid that if you become the expert, then maybe you'll have the tendency to close your mind. I don't know. Maybe I won't have to learn anymore. I just want to remain a student. And I give my students, my students, that I tell them, yeah, well, we're a little more advanced students, but we're still students. Sure. So I think what we want everybody out there to do is become a student of uh, emergency preparedness, of, of survival, disaster preparation. Become a student of it and make it part of their life to whereby, yeah, they have careers and they have lives and they have families. But this is, uh, going back to family, this is a great family activity. Uh, as we know from some of the forums we deal with, yours and others, I mean, there are families out there that do this. You know, they camp together. Uh, they, they camp in the backyard, which I'm a big advocate of what I call backyard survival. Mm -hmm. It's very important to go out in the backyard and test your gear, test your skills before you need them. Don't go out in the middle of the woods and try to test a new tent or sleeping bag. If you're in the backyard and something fails, you can always go in the house. Sure. If a skill fails... Uh, if your garden fails, you can go in the house and still eat food. Uh, so these are things that are important for people to make a part of their life. And it doesn't have to be the major part of their life, but it should always be there, uh, always be learning and, and, and to trying to grasp more, grasp more information in regard to this. I'm not sure if that answered. No, it answers it perfectly. That's all right. That's wide words, John. And, and I'm going to wrap now. And, and thank you for coming on the show with us. And, and folks, uh, I'll tell you what. Go out. John plugs his book like any good author, but I'm going to plug it for him one more time. Build the Perfect Survival Kit by John McCann. Um, when you start reading this book, you'll realize that the amount of research that must have went into it, the number of items reviewed, opinions on them, what works, what doesn't, is just absolutely outstanding. So, uh, you know, go by the Survival Podcast, check a look at the show notes. I'll give you a link straight off to purchase his book. If you're anywhere up in his area, you're going to be traveling there, consider attending his school. It sounds really cool. Uh, if I get up that way again, John, maybe I'll drop in and spend a weekend with you. That sounds like it'd like to be a lot of fun, but I think what you hear here at the end with John wrapping up with us is a passion and a desire to share the knowledge, and when he, when he talks about being a student for life, that's really what I hope that everybody here is doing, and love his words on not considering himself an expert. Folks, I get on here and talk to you five days a week. I don't consider myself an expert. You might teach, but as a teacher, you're just coming to a different level of being a student. You learn more when you teach than anything else. So don't just learn these skills, practice these skills. Don't just, you know, practice preparedness and put together plans and contingencies. Share that with other people. Become a teacher yourself. You'll learn more when you do that, and that's a great way for you to start living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can holler, it really doesn't matter. Get spent 